People observe Easter for a variety of reasons. Now, some do it out of tradition, you know. Um, it's a part of their family. It, it's a part of their cultural fiber. And so it would be just, you know, anathema to not go to church on Easter Sunday. That would just be the wrong thing to do. You know, for me, I never remember, I really never remember ever going to church at Christmas, but I definitely remember going to church at Easter. Now, this is not my family, but this is what families do, right? (laughs) And that right there is what some of y'all look like right now. (laughs) Like, I got dressed up, and I'm here, and I don't like it one bit, all right? Some of you are going to come here today, you're going to leave, and you're going to go to Grandma's house, and you're going to have the same lunch Grandma made a year ago, and the year before that, and the year before that, and the year next year, because that's what Grandma does. And then after Grandma's lunch, you're going to have an Easter egg hunt, whether you still hunt them or not, you're putting them out for the kids. And then after that, you're going to eat peeps, you know what I mean? And I don't know why you'd do that, but that's what people do. That's not in the Bible. Some of you came here today because you don't want to sleep on the couch tonight. Because someone says, you need to come to church with me, and you just understood what that meant, and so you came to church, right? Some of you here today because a friend invited you, and out of respect for that friend, you're here instead of being on the couch and watching the ball game or the golf tournament or whatever. And some of you are here because you're looking for something. You're, you're curious. You're a seeker about the next thing. You're, you're a seeker for something. You're a seeker for anything that will help you in your life's journey. This morning, I'd like to suggest to you that you're not looking for something. You're looking for someone. And we're going to spend our time this morning talking about that someone. His name is Jesus. That's who it is. And I bet that wasn't a surprise to you, was it? You knew I was going to say that, didn't you? Easter is a celebration of the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. There are many who would scoff at such a thought. I mean, it'd just be just like, you know, believing in the force be with you in the Jedi Knights, right? And some of you are sitting here thinking, I believe in the Jedi Knights more than I believe what you're talking about. And that's perfectly cool. That's all right. But there are eyewitnesses that verify the truth that are in the hundreds who saw him. There is so much historical evidence that would demonstrate that he did rise from the dead. And today, that's just part of a a terribly brief, short, abbreviated Old Testament review, or a review. In the Old Testament, the first 39 books of the Bible, the biggest part of the Bible here, the first 39 books, there are so many times in the Old Testament where it points toward a Messiah, toward a Redeemer, toward someone who's coming and is going to fix the mess that Adam and Eve made. It begins in Genesis, and you can read about this Messiah, this person who's coming in Psalms. You can read about in Isaiah. And then when you get to the New Testament, the little part at the back here, there, that's what this all, the last part is all about it. As a matter of fact, the first part of the New Testament starts off with these four Gospels, these four stories about Jesus, written by Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. You know, four of his followers. They wrote stories about their experience with him. And those four stories are pretty detailed accounts of his life. The Reader's Digest version of his story is like this. And, right, and, right, and I know some of you are going to immediately go, well, here, here comes back to the Jedi Knight stuff, right? Because Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit in a young virgin girl. He grew up like any person except that he never sinned. When he stubbed his toe, he does not use the words I use. 
I heard my son go, that's the truth. That's crazy. <laughs> Is that what you said? Who said that over here? Yeah, all these guys who hang out at my house. Yeah, y'all be quiet over there, all right? Wow. All right. About the time, about the time he turned 30... He began to teach throughout the nation of Israel. And during that time, he focused on teaching a core group of men, his disciples, who traveled with him everywhere he went. He did miracles of all sorts. He taught with great authority. And while he was doing all this, he made enemies. These religious leaders who were around were threatened by him, and they were threatened by his large following. And as is the case with many charismatic leaders throughout history, people like them become targets. Think of like Gandhi. And Martin Luther King. People like that become targets. And when we enter the story of the Easter week, Christ arrives in Jerusalem, the religious center of the nation. And two things are happening there. The people are eager to see him. And the religious leaders are not eager to see him. He enters the city on Sunday to the people cheering for him, laying down palm branches and their cloaks on the ground, ready to make him a king. And he spends two days with his followers, instructing them. And then the other thing he does those two days is his favorite hobby, which is arguing with the religious leaders in the temple. Finally, on Thursday, he has the Last Supper. Think of Leonardo da Vinci's painting. With his disciples, he's He's gathered together in the upper room, as they called it, a room that was just alone to them where they could have this last supper. They observed the Passover. And while he's there, he's sitting with these people that are his closest friends. And for three years now, they have been traveling together. And he begins to give like a farewell speech. But they don't understand it as that. But they're not sure why he's talking the way he is. And he begins to give last instructions. And he says that among you is one who is going to betray me. And he says, and you, Peter, you'll deny me. And they go on through the night talking like this. And late, late into the night, they go to an olive garden. And it's not an olive garden like a restaurant. (laughs) It's not that, all right? It was a real olive grove. You know, and they have paintings like, you know, where he went to pray. And you can still go to a very similar garden like that in Jerusalem where the the old olive trees are there. And while there, he's arrested within nine to ten hours. He's been accused of, of false allegations. He's been tortured. He's been found guilty. And he's been given the death penalty and he's to be crucified. And on that Friday, at midnight of that Friday or Thursday night, however you want to call it, he had been with his followers talking about things that were about to happen. And by noon of that same day, he's been accused, convicted, tortured, and crucified. And he dies on that cross. Before the sun goes down, this dead man is laid to rest in the tomb of a rich city leader. A huge stone is rolled over the opening and Roman soldiers are posted outside of that tomb. On Sunday, 
his followers come to tend to the body with ointments and perfumes. You, you, we read about at the beginning of the service. And they arrive to see the stone rolled away. No guards present and no body in the tomb. And there are these angels that are there. They say this most fantastic line. Why do you look for the living among the dead? Why do you look for the living among the dead? Why are you looking for Jesus here? He's alive. He's not among these dead people. Why are you here looking for him? Because he's risen. Let's pick up our text in the next passage. Luke 24, 13 through 24. And there Luke continues to tell the story. I'll read it to us. Luke 13 through... And behold, the two of them... I'm sorry, let me start over and say... They've gone to the tomb. It's empty. And Luke tells a story. He stops there, and he goes, it's just like everything he told you it was going to happen. He's not here. The very next thing Luke does is he starts talking about two people walking, leaving Jerusalem after the Passover and after the crucifixion. And they're walking on to, the, to Emmaus, seven miles away. And the story goes like this, verse 13 of chapter 24 of Luke. And behold... Two of them were going that very day to a village named Emmaus, which was about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were conversing with each other about all the things which had taken place. And it came about that while they were conversing and discussing, Jesus himself appeared, approached, and began to travel with them. But their eyes were prevented from recognizing him. And he said to them, What are these words you're exchanging with each other as you walk? And they stopped. I mean, they stood still looking sad. And one of them named Cleopas answered and said to him, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem unaware of the things that have just happened? And he said to them, what things? And they said to him, the things about Jesus the Nazarene, who was a a mighty prophet in deed and word in the sight of God and all the people, and how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him up to, to the sentence of death and crucified him. But we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. Instead, indeed, besides all this, on the third day since all these things have happened, it's been the third day since all this has happened, he says. But also some women among us amazed us. When they were at the tomb this morning, they did not find his body. And they came saying that, that they had also seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. And some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said but they did not see him. So can you imagine this? This would be equivalent to on September the 12th, 2001, to be sitting at Starbucks and hearing people talk about some type of devastating event that had just happened on 9-11. And then you turn around to them and you go, what are you talking about? That's the equivalent of what we're talking about here. Who didn't know of what had happened on 9-11? Who didn't know about it? And so if you'd walked into some place and said, I've never heard of this, I don't know anything about this, people would be astonished at you. And that's the equivalent of what's happened here. These two people are sitting in Starbucks outside of Jerusalem, paying too much for their coffee. (laughs) And they're talking about what has happened. And Jesus appears at the table next to them. 
I says, what are you talking about? And they go, are you kidding me? What rock are you living under? There was this guy. His name was Jesus, and he was amazing. And he, he was healing people. And he was teaching with such great authority. And there were throngs of people following him. And our leaders, they didn't appreciate him. They didn't appreciate him at all. Matter of fact, they hated him. So they plotted against him. They trumped up a bunch of charges. They took him to Pilate. And Pilate convicted him. And the religious leaders took him and crucified him and put him in a tomb. That was three days ago. This morning, some of our friends, they went to the tomb to tend to the body. And when they showed up, the stone was rolled away. All those Roman soldiers were gone. And there was no body there. And they went back and told some of the other guys. And the other guys rushed down there to see what had happened and and to try and verify the story. And when they got there, it was true. It was true. There was no body there. And so we thought that this guy... We, we, we've been waiting for thousands of years to have Israel reclaim our place, to be rid of the Roman government, to be rid of all the foreign nations who have come in and, and dominated us and persecuted us. We were waiting for a Messiah to come and take all that away. And he's dead, and he's gone, and we got nothing. How would, you, how would you describe, how would you characterize what Cleopas and his friend were feeling? Talk to me. Ryan, how would you characterize them? Yeah, you. You always want to talk to me. Come on, brother, talk. How would you characterize them? Anybody? Betrayed. Disappointed. What? Betrayed. Betrayed. Discouraged. Discouraged. Let me down. Discouraged. What else? What other words would you use? What? Backstab. All right. What else? Confused. Sad. Good job, Avery. Yeah. Yeah. How about? How about like some of the words you used? How about defeated? Despairing. Crushed. Deflated. Hopeless. They had believed in the wrong leader, the wrong Messiah. But there's a principle that I want to ask you to consider today, and that's that hope delayed does not mean hope is denied. That hope delayed does not mean that hope is denied. That there maybe has come a time and a place in your life where you thought something was happening and you were hoping for it and it didn't happen, and so you thought your hope was crushed and it was never going to happen. But Scripture teaches us that God's character is of such that he says that hope delayed doesn't mean it's not coming. It's, it's still coming. It's still coming. As we read the remainder of the story, we see that Jesus begins to explain to them in this story here in chapter 24. He begins to explain to them all that Scripture had been saying of them. And he goes, you guys, you guys, don't you... Didn't you read the scripture? I mean, you're Jews, right? 
You were, you were in the temple, right? You studied the Torah, right? Well, this is what it says about this guy. And he begins to talk about it. And they keep walking, they keep walking. And they're on this path, and they come up to the city limits of Emmaus, and they go, where are you going? Because we're coming home for dinner. You want to come? We'd love for you to keep talking to us. And he goes, ah, yeah, I will. And he comes, and they continue to talk along the way. And as they sit to the table to begin to eat, he breaks the bread, and he says grace over He says a blessing over the food. And in that moment, it's as if their eyes have been opened, and they go, it's you. And he's gone. Amen, brother. (laughs) Avery, you can sit there every week, okay? And he's gone. And so here they are. They walk away from the dinner table. They leave the food on the table, and they rush back to Jerusalem that seven miles, and they find Peter and, and the other disciples, and they go, it's true. We saw him. He's alive. And in that moment, he steps into the room. And in that moment, he steps into the room. And they've said, in verse 32, there's this phrase that they say, didn't our hearts burn within us while he was speaking to us on the road, while he was explaining the scriptures to us? In other words, it's like, was that the most crazy thing you've ever experienced? How our hearts were just full as he spoke to us. They had thought that their hope had been crushed but they only found out that it was only delayed. He was dead. He was dead and in the tomb from Friday to Sunday and three days by the Jewish calendar. But now they've seen him alive. And just, as they, and just to kind of put two to two together, when he appears to them, he says to them, See my hands and my feet? That it is, my, it is my, I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. In other words, this is not a ghost. This is not some kind of spiritual thing happening to you. I am alive, fully human. See my wounds to prove it? I am back from the dead. Let me ask you something. Think about this. What, what is the one thing that most terrifies mankind. What is the one thing you think most, and it's not speaking in public, and it's not clowns either. Turn your eyes away if that bothers you, okay? It's death. Death. There are myths and legends about a fountain of youth And now that's going to come in really, really handy if you don't ever want to die. Why why do they make, those of you crazy enough to ride a motorcycle, why do they make you wear a helmet? Why do they make us wear seatbelts? Why do they put kids in a baby chair? Because, you know what the thing is, why isn't there a cure for cancer? Why do we care about that? Why do we care about heart disease? Because we don't want to die. Death is a scary thing, and it's a scary thing to many because they don't know what to expect on the other side of it. So wouldn't it be great if there's a cure for death? Now, I don't want to get your hopes up because there's no cure, but there is hope. When it comes to death, there is no cure for death, but there is hope for death. 
Christ's resurrection demonstrates that death is not the invincible power. He defeated death. You you see, like he was dead. For three days he was in a tomb. He was dead. He did not breathe. He did not do anything that live people do. He was very much a dead person. He does what dead people do. But on that third day, he came back to life, fully alive. So therefore, death did not hold him in the grave. Death, where is thy sting? Death did not hold him in the grave. It could not do it because his power was greater than that. His power is greater than that. Listen to what Paul wrote in a letter to the church in Corinthians. Um, he said, I received, from what I received, I passed on to you as first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. He died for our sins, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. And after that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at at the time, many of whom them are still living at the time that Paul wrote this. Many of them are still alive, although some have died, he says. 1 Corinthians 15. Jesus gives us a hope that is not denied. We have a hope that is delayed, but it's coming. And this hope is not something we wish for. It's not that kind of thing where people say, I hope it will happen. It's more like I, they say, this is our only hope. This has to happen. This is our only hope. Once, one is we don't know if it will happen. The other is that it has to happen. And if Jesus has said so, it's going to happen. Peter, Peter wrote, he said, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into the living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. He's giving us a living hope, one that's alive. You know what he means by that? He means that Jesus is alive, and so our hope is alive because of him. Our hope is alive because of him. Now, let me, let me give you three things to consider that resurrection hope can give you. Three things that resurrection hope can give you. Number one is resurrection hope can forgive your past. It can forgive your past. Most of the people in this room would probably be described as really nice people. There's a couple of you I wouldn't say that about, but most of you, I would say you're really nice people. I mean, you don't turn right on red and you hold the door for little old ladies, but inside of us, inside of us, there are things that we don't want to talk about. There are things that we are not proud of that maybe no one else knows besides you. I have my stuff. I have my stuff just like that. And I would venture to think most of us do. And while you may be a nice person, you're not a holy person. Because that's what God demands. God demands holiness. He demands moral Moral perfection in every way. Moral perfection in every way. In the divine justice system of God, sin, sin is this Bible word for anything that we think or say or do that does not please God. Any of that stuff, any of that stuff we've done wrong. Doing something wrong in our world means you have to pay for it. You have to make it right somehow or another. In God's world, doing something wrong means you have to pay a penalty as well. And in God's divine justice system, it means death. 
It means eternal separation from him. Paul wrote, and he said this, he said in Colossians, he says, Though you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. Do you get that verse? Do you get that verse up there? I'm reading it right here, so I'm not talking to these guys. Although they need it, I'm not talking to them, all right? He's saying, he goes, he goes before you were apart from God, and you were hostile on your mind, you were evil inside, and you were doing all kinds of stuff because now you've been reconciled to God through his fleshly body that was put to death. He died to forgive you of your sins, he says. And then when he died and he forgave you of your sins, he presents you now holy before God. And therefore, no man can lay a claim against you. No man can point a finger at you because God sees you as holy because all your sins are forgiven. He doesn't mean all your sins that, you, that he knows about. He means all the sins you haven't done yet are forgiven as well. Past, present, future, they're forgiven. Paul wrote, in Romans 8, he says, Therefore, there is no condemnation for those who are found in Christ Jesus. Do you get that? That's like if he was, you're sending before a judge, the judge would go, Huh, there's nothing wrong. I don't see anything wrong here. You're not condemned. You're not, pun- you're not convicted. You're free. Go. You're innocent. You're innocent. Christ died the death that you and I deserve so that we can be in a relationship with him as if we never sinned. So no one can point a finger at us. No one can accuse us. And apart from Christ, you're in the eternal penalty box. That's for my hockey fans. I'm trying to keep you involved, all right? You're in the eternal penalty box. Christ's death for you means that your past can be forgiven. It doesn't have to weigh you down. It doesn't, you don't have to live with the guilt and the shame of those things that you've done. It can be washed away. Wouldn't you like your shame and guilt to be washed away? That's what resurrection hope can do for you. Number two, resurrection hope can present, your present problems can be manageable. Let me explain it like this. In 2010, there was a mining accident in Chile where 22 men were trapped 2,300 feet below the ground. That's about a half mile below the ground. And it was three miles from the mine entrance. They were half a mile below ground, but the tunnel system was a spiral that kept going down. And that, that tunnel system was three miles long before it got to where they were. And they were trapped there. Rescuers began to bore holes into the ground trying to find where they were. And after 16 days, there had been no trace of the men. On the 17th day, they were drilling holes into the ground, and they pulled the shaft out, and attached to the end of it was a note that said, We are well in the shelter, the 33 of us. But they were not rescued for another 52 days. They were trapped for a total of 69 days. It took them 52 more days to find out how to get to them and get all 33 of them out. But when that drilling rig broke through their tunnel, they knew there was hope. They knew someone on the surface knew about their situation and was working to rescue them. The hope that Jesus gives is just like that. 
While we are in this life, we know that there is a God who knows about us, who is concerned for us, and one day will take us to the surface, so to speak. He'll take us to be with him. So those miners, well, they weren't rescued for another 52 days, and their situation was not a comfortable situation. It was not the situation they would choose to be in. They could live in it knowing that they weren't trapped there forever. They could make do. They could manage that present circumstance because they knew hope was on its way because they knew rescue was coming. Resurrection hope is the same way for Christians. We know that we're not trapped here in this life forever. We know that we're not trapped here in this circumstance forever, in this body that is fighting cancer, in this body that has things broken with it that can't be fixed, in these relationships that we don't know how to get out of. And whatever the situation may be, we're not trapped in that forever. We know that there's a hope coming. We know that we're being rescued, that we'll be taken to the surface someday. We know that's coming. And so that means that I can sit here and I can be patient and I can know that this is not all there is. They had a hope that was delayed but not denied. Do you need a hope that you can look forward to? Finally, resurrection hope gives us a certainty about the future. There are certain stories that are just really corny, but they work in a sermon. And so I have one of those for you right now. (laughs) Have you heard the story about the man who wanted to be buried with a fork in his hand? If you did, don't say a word, okay? There's a story about a man who wanted to be buried with a fork in his hand. And he told them, that's what he wanted to have happen to him when he, was, when he died. And they said, why do you want us to place you in a coffin with a fork in your hand? Explain yourself, please. And he went on to explain. He says, have you ever been to like a wedding reception or to a charity dinner? And like there's all this food on the table. And at some point or another, this person's going to come around to you and they're going to begin to take all those plates and all that food away. And they're going to say, keep your fork. Why would they do that? They'll do that because the good stuff's coming. They do that because the chocolate pie's coming out. They do that because cherry pie's coming out with ice cream on it. They do that because the good stuff is coming. You should keep your fork because you want to participate in that good stuff. You can keep your fork. The good stuff is coming. That is what people who have resurrection hope believe. The good stuff is still to come. Keep your fork. Paul wrote in Thessalonians, he says, For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. In other words, all those who have died believing in Jesus, believing that he died and rose again, they'll be brought to heaven with him. That's why the funeral for a Christian is not always a terrible, mournful event. I really came to understand this at the funeral for my father-in-law. In South Florida, it was in a big funeral home, and we had this large room that's like maybe half the size of this or so. And so we were in this side over here observe, having the funeral service for my father-in-law. There was a giant hallway, and then on the other side was another room where there was another funeral. And this room over here, where Dad was being remembered, it was very relaxed. It was sad that Mom was going to be without him. It was sad that our our kids were going to grow older without him. But we were very relaxed because 
we were pleased that dad was with the Lord. The tears we had were tears of salvation, not of sorrow. And during the course of that thing, I walked outside in the hallway, and people were coming out of this other room, and those people were broken. Those people were broken as if people without any hope. Without any hope. And it was in that moment when I walked out of this room that was relaxed, and I walked into this presence of these other people who were not relaxed, that I realized that the death of a Christian is not a mournful, terrible thing in that way. While we do grieve the loss of them, we know that their loved one is thrilled with where they are. Thrilled with where they are. That's why I've told Betty Jo that when I die, I do not want a dull funeral. I've told her that I want a party like it's 1999. That means nothing to some of you younger people, all right? I know that. (laughs) Ask the old people. Because I will be free. I will be free. And everything that I've hoped in, my hope will have been realized. Everything I've talked about, everything I've read about, everything I've wanted, in that moment when I close my eyes on that last time, I will open them again and I will be with him. My hope will be realized And so I've told Betty, I said, I want you to play that old gospel song, I Fly Away. But I don't want you to sing it like you were in church. I want you to sing it like you're in a honky-tonk, loud and rowdy. Because it's a celebration. And we're going to eat. No, we're not going to eat. You're going to eat wings and nachos. And you're going to have a good time. Because you're like going, he's gone. He's free. He's with the Lord. Celebrate. Because... When we lose someone, their hope has been realized. Don't you want that kind of hope for the future? If you want to be rid of the stain of all the things you've done wrong, if you want to be able to manage the brokenness of this life, if if you want to have something to look forward to in the next life, then I'm, I'm asking you to seriously consider the claims of Christ. He lived a sinless life. He was wrongly accused. He was was convicted and executed. And that execution, that death he died, was a substitute for you and I. He paid the penalty that you and I owed because he loves you that much. Not because he had to. He didn't have to do that as God. But he loved you enough to do that as God. Has anyone ever loved you that way? I hope that there are some in this room asking, what do I need to do to have this kind of hope? What do I have to do to have this kind of hope? What does it look like? Let me just tell you, the simple answer is this. And as a matter of fact, it is so simple that there are some who refuse to believe it because it is just so simple. The simple answer is this. Change what you believe. To have this kind of hope, change what you believe. Stop believing that you can be good enough. Stop believing that you can do enough stuff to please God and to earn your way into heaven. Stop believing that you have to make points with him to make him happy with you. You can't do that enough. 
Remember, God demands perfect holiness, and no one else in this room or on this planet can claim that, but Jesus can. So the perfect holy one died on a cross to pay your penalty so you don't have to. Believe that. Believe that he died so you don't have to die. Scripture says that famous verse, For God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten Son so that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. And then in addition to that, Paul wrote in Ephesians, he said, By grace you have been saved through faith, not of works, not of yourselves. It's a gift of God, not as a result of works, so no man can boast. In other words, what those two passages say is this, is God loved you so much that he sent his son to die so you don't have to. And when you believe that he died for you, when you stop believing that other stuff and you start believing this stuff, that gives you eternal life. And then he goes, that eternal life, that eternal life, it's, he, look at it. It goes, it goes, it's not works. You don't get to boast about anything. You didn't do anything. It's not works. It's his grace. It's him saying, you don't deserve this, but I love you and I'm giving it to you. Here, eternal life, when you start to believe the right stuff. If you want to have resurrection hope, forgiveness of sins, be cleansed of your shame and your guilt, and have hope for the future, and so, so much more. This morning, and you've never done that before, I would just ask you to consider the claims of Christ and what the Bible has to say about this. It's, it's, again, it's just too simple. Because all you have to do in the, in the silence of your own heart, you just have to talk to him. And you just have to say to him, I, I, I need what they're talking about here. And I know I don't have it. In your own words, somehow or another, tell him, you go, I know that we're not together. I know that I'm separated from you. I know that I'm not holy. And I'm going to stop believing that I can make myself that way. And I'm going to believe that Jesus died for me. And I want to become your child. I want to take Christ as my Savior. I want to believe that. You say that or something like that. There's no magic formula. You say something like that to him in the silence of your own heart. And he'll believe that. And he'll take you as his. And he'll take that old dead heart inside of you that is weighed down with all your stuff and he'll rinse it off and he'll make it clean and he'll take the holiness of Christ and he'll go, what he did, it's yours now. And I see you this way. Right now, I'm going to just take a few moments and and, um, we're going to pray and and I'm going to have a moment of silence and Church, I'm going to ask you, if you know Christ as your Savior, I'm going to just ask you to be praying for anyone in our room who might be thinking about this and wrestling with this. And just pray for them as they think about this. And, and if you're here and you've never talked to God that way, I'm asking you that if you want to do that today, and I'd plead with you to do so, that you would do that even in this moment of silence. You just talk to Him quietly. And then I'll close with a word of prayer and we'll wrap up our service, all right? So just a moment of silence. If you need to talk to the Lord, do so right now. Father, this morning we thank you that you do give us this crazy kind of hope. That you do give us the ability to 
navigate this life more easily because we have something to look forward to in the next one, that you do give us the ability to be able to wash, be washed, our sins to be washed away and the guilt and the shame of it all. We just thank you so much that you have done all that for us. And you've done it for us even before we asked for it. We, you've done it for us even while we've been steeped in our sin and our selfishness. You did all that even then. And we thank you for that. Father, today, we give you glory and honor for sacrificing yourself on our behalf and for raising from the dead and, and, and defeating death so that we don't have to face death alone. So that when we close our eyes one day, we will open them in your arms. We'll open them in your presence. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.